welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Leslie Ann Vaughan, the director of Miele Consulting and co-creator of M-Pesa, the famous M-Pesa, Vodafone's money transfer service in Kenya. Since 2005, Leslie Ann has been dedicated to mobile money and mobile financial services in emerging markets. So I hope you guys enjoy the interview. So Leslie Ann, pleasure to have you here. Thank you for joining us on Fintech Insider. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it's, it's great to have you here. And I think the first question I have to ask is, what did you want to be as a kid? <laughs> I was a kid in the 80s in Northern Ireland, not an engineer. <laughs> 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 I played with my dolls and, uh, and everybody was a nurse or a doctor or a teacher. And, and probably the first interaction I had with engineering was when I was about 17. My maths teacher said, go to this STEM event in... Um, in Scotland, it was a week-long event for girls. And I think that's when the excitement grew around actually what an engineer is, it's not a mechanic. <laughs> <laughs> and from there, really, that's where my, my engineering focus came. But as a kid, wow, well, no, I was, a, I was a proper girly girl. So how would you describe what an engineer is then? Because it's, it's not a mechanic, but I think to the layperson, it can sound a lot like a mechanic. We hear the term thrown around and developers and engineers and all of those sort of technical jobs, but make it accessible for me. Like, what is an engineer to you? When it comes down to it, I guess in the day-to-day -day job that I've been doing the past 20 years, um, it's about making an idea real. It's it's taking now what if and going can we actually do it or it's it's playing with things it's how would we and and um, you know the reason we have all the gadgets and gizmos we have in the world today are because engineers started to play with things and make things a reality. I mean, the, my first job was with scientific generics, which I call Sedenti in, in Cambridge, and it was full of physicists and mathematicians and engineers, and there were hardware engineers and software engineers, and there was cross-functional teams doing all kinds of cool stuff. It's the cool stuff. That's why, well, I think that's what engineers do. There's it's, something about making something work, isn't yes. it? It's, it's either it's building some Lego yeah. or it's just getting a piece of software to say your name. Yeah. There's something quite nice about and, that achievement. And you have to play with it and try and try and try. An engineer doesn't leave a problem. It takes a problem and, and you keep going until you figure out what to do next. I love that. I love that. So talk to me a little bit about uh, being an engineer at M-Pesa. So, um, and it might probably be worth explaining what is M-Pesa first for, for the audience that haven't heard of it. So if you took Monzo, a mobile bank, and you said, okay, we don't have a card, we're going to use mobile phones. And you want effectively to have a, a debit card, a, a current account, but you want to operate it by your mobile phone. That's effectively M-Pesa in Kenya. Um, it's a way to transmit money from one person to another. We use a network like the post office um, equivalent and, and a whole like 70,000 stores in, in Kenya to put money in and out of the system. But effectively, it's a way to move money between accounts and use this cash agent network to, to do debits and credits. The key is you don't need a bank account. You only need to register for M-Pesa and the KYC required for M-Pesa is much lower than for a bank account. And the business model behind it is pay-as-you-go. Back in 2005, it was anyway. It's, 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 it's got all kinds of things changing and happening. Um, but the key for that was when you don't use it, you don't have to pay for it. And I think that was the key differentiator to a bank account. People were a bit scared of bank accounts. 
banking halls were scary places. Um, it's not for me, was our customers um, thinking behind this. And, and this, but, but they still had to send money. They, there's a lot of migrant workers in Kenya. They, tr- they work in Nairobi. They travel home with the money. They send money with bus drivers. Maybe half the money would get home. And so you end up with a situation where it's risky, it's expensive, it takes a long time to send money. And now you've got this way where you can do it instantly, fast, easy, secure, safe, was, was kind of the value proposition. That's very time. different. Very different to having cash, very different to being robbed and having your money stolen from you, but it's also very different to opening a bank account if you've never dealt with a bank before. And I guess, what, 2005, you won't have had smartphones, especially not in in Kenya, Um, so it would have been a very different experience. I didn't have a smartphone in 2005. None of us did. There were no APIs, there were no smartphones. I was using a Nokia in 2005. But we created a digital service and we did it using uh, very, very basic SMS-led services. They were encrypted, end-to-end, triple days. We had security experts who were doing um, proper bank-grade encryption stuff around the service. It was very secure in that respect, but it wasn't hard for the end users to use it. It was very, very simple user experience. And and that was key. We actually pivoted. In 2007, we launched M-Pesa as a live service. But in 2005, the original product was microfinance. And um, we were solving the pain point of how do we get microfinance to be more effective, more efficient, more cheaply administered. And we worked with, with the Microfinance Institute and Safaricom on this. And it was all about repaying loans and dispersing loans and dealing with the group mentality of having to leave your business and do all kinds of things. The product was far more complicated. We were actually giving people their phone in the meetings for the first time. We were training them how to use a Nokia. And we saw then that the service is actually quite complex. What we designed had modeled the real life of field officers and moving money this and everywhere. But, but actually we were training people to use phones. And we kind of put a couple of services on there that turned into what is best today. The, the P2P service and by airtime went into the pilot alongside the microfinance um, portions of the business. And when you looked at the data, that's where some real traction was happening. It's where we then saw when you ask the customers, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? And seeing a real kind of pain point being solved there, which is kind of why we simplified the business because it was a little bit too complex. And we also um, pivoted to where customers had a real pain point in Kenya. Wow. That makes, that's really, really quite powerful, isn't it? That you tested and learned and adjusted very, very quickly. And then people took on and adopted something where previously they were using cash and you know migrant migrating and, and the cash was being stolen from them. There was high percentage of crime at the time. So therefore, now they've got a real solution to that. They can go to a store, they can buy airtime and they have to buy airtime anyway because they're buying that for their mobile phone to call each other. And then they can send that airtime pretty much to each other as if it was the same as, as cash. Well, it's, it's very like airtime, but actually it wasn't airtime. Ah, so it's a completely separate engine that was able to move airtime around the system but our system was completely designed ground up full stack and it was about trading one-to-one with money currency completely separate to the airtime billing system see that idea and that was important because now we had a way to create a business model whereas the airtime engine was happening completely in parallel in the same company that was being done for free there was no business processes around it to make it secure make it this make it that Whereas now we had this effectively full stack banking system that was designed from the ground up that has nothing to do with the airtime, but you could use the money in there to buy airtime. 
That's very interesting. I did not know that. See, I'm learning so much from you already. Uh, so, so you mentioned the business case. Talk to me a little bit about that business case. Like, how's it done? How's it made money? Like, what, what were the assumptions going in? And then kind of now we sit here in 2017, what's happened 10 years on from its uh, first proper launch? Well, it's actually a very good friend of mine, Susie Leone, who was behind most of the business case decisions in terms of, you know, studying the pilot and going through and, and working on what we should do at the launch proposition. It was page ago. Um, we, you didn't pay to deposit. That's all about viral growth. You get money into the system. It's completely free. Um, you pay to send. You pay to withdraw. And when you take the three transactions together, you see that you can make money. But you kind of assume that the three transactions are happening in this P2P model. It's grown since then. We've got bill payments happening massively. And there's lots of different ways that you can use that. Um, in fact, there's all kinds of IoT stuff coming out now. There's, there's um, ways to buy your solar energy, pay as you go, all kinds of things happening. Mm. It's a massive growth factor. A massive change has happened in that, that bill payment space. And merchant payments are kind of just starting to happen now. But there's a real problem there with merchant payments in the business model. Uh, in the sense that people aren't used to being to Merchants aren't used to paying like they are in the UK. Merchants pay to accept card transactions. They are not used to that. Um, so it's quite hard to get some acceptance. And, and that's still a model that, that isn't quite settled yet in terms of where we're going in the industry. Um, but effectively, that's been the model. And there's not been a lot of change there. How do telcos make money? They can't make money like, like a bank. They, they can't um, offer interest and they can't loan the money out. The whole money must sit in the bank account um, and the interest is treated in a very special way because of the regulations um, in play around the fact that we're using a money transfer license. And so there's a lot of money in the bank. It's making a lot of interest. It's being effectively um, poured into foundations and the like. The first little places where we've seen some change in, in this is actually that interest is starting to be paid back out in Tanzania. They've actually gone for like a profit share agreement and they've actually, the regulators have agreed that they will um, send the money back out to people who have deposited money and stuff. But, and that might create some change, might create some different business models going on, but really pay-as-you-go is heavily the model, heavily the model in East Africa. And I think that's worked because it's cheaper than the alternatives mm-hmm. and possibly actually, we need some business model innovation to see it working elsewhere. If you haven't got that same um, thing going on, there's no way MPESA would work in the UK, right? We we don't pay for banking, mm-hmm. we think. Um, and so you couldn't put the same kind of models in different, in different countries. And I think that's quite important that you study your own markets and see what's going on. Well, absolutely. I think there's something somebody once said that uh, MPESA is a bit like the Galapagos. It's this wonderful thing that has all of this wonderful features and properties that you don't see anywhere else in the world because of the unique things in that market. And isn't it true, I, I read somewhere, and I might be wrong, that uh, M-Pesa had, or Safaricom has like 80% of the market as well. So they helps could- Helps a lot, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that really helps when you've got a pretty much a monopoly of uh, users. You, you still need to do an awful lot of marketing and awareness campaigns and the like. And a big feature of M-Pesa was viral growth. And um, we allowed, the regulators allowed us to be able to send money to anybody, any phone number, without a registration which oh, wow. meant that you as an early adopter can get your mum on the system. Um, it costs a little bit more, so it's actually an encouragement. You can help us get your mum onto the system properly. You'll pay less overall, the, the overall transaction. But, but that was really important, actually, I think, in Kenya. We, we didn't have lots of money to spend on marketing. As far as I'm, we did do some, but um, that viral growth 
piece was amazing. It has actually. all the hallmarks of a proper startup, even though it was inside, you know, large telco. Yes. Because you were not spending a lot of marketing. You had to really pivot quickly to figure out what business model worked. It started with something very, very simple in that it's payments. Yes, you had 80% of the users, but then a government has 100% of the users in theory and they can't get new services adopted all the time. So you had to go for a viral growth where you just send somebody money and if they've got a mobile phone, they can pretty much use it straight away. Uh, I think the simplicity of that appears to be its brilliance. But It, it was designed though. I mean, they, we really thought hard about the onboarding process. It had to, you had to leave the agent store working. And therefore, we pushed quite hard on the KYC. And when the when our AML officer came in and went, you can't, you can't, you can't. Well, are you sure? How can we? And we went heavily. We we literally. I remember sitting in the room in in in, um, in Cambridge with our AML officer and our our product manager Susie and and me and some of the tech guys going, you have to photocopy the ID. It's a rural shop in the middle of mid Kenya. They don't have a photocopier. What can we do? Okay, let's look closer at what FATF actually says. What can we do? Oh, we can do quite a lot at less than a thousand euros a year. Oh, okay, let's put in the concept of tiered KYC. What became tiered KYC? And the fact that you can do quite a bit as a poor person in Kenya, a thousand euros is quite a lot of money. I think it's worth you know? probably just um, deconstructing that a little bit because there's a yeah. lot of value in there for our listeners yeah. who might be facing challenges working in a bank or working in a fintech, trying to get something working. Because KYC, know your customer being... I want to get a new financial product and for the first time I'm going to register for it. And traditionally that means you walk into a bank branch and you take your photo ID and you take a payment bill. But now what you have is in Kenya and some rural area, what you're seeing is that actually somebody's trying to walk into a small shop in a rural area where they don't have a photocopier. So now you've had to invent something that you guys called tiered KYC because of the FATF regulation. Um, I think it's FATF 16, which basically says under a thousand euros or under a thousand dollars, then certain levels of KYC are required. But over that, more KYC is required. And a lot of people never go back and read those regulations. And those regulations are super important. But actually, as you say, underneath that thousand euro mark, which for that geography is going to be 99.9% of transactions. You absolutely got, were able to do that. And I think what's interesting there again is you've hit a challenge and you've solved it. Was that your biggest challenge or did you have kind of other challenges that really came along and you thought, oh no, we're, we're not going to get past this one. And, and then how did you solve them? Oh, there's all kinds of challenges, right? There's all kinds of challenges. A big one um and anyone who's worked in emerging markets with agents will will definitely know it. Agents are the cornerstone of mobile money. We talk about the tech, we talk about this that, and the other marketing and P2P. But actually, if you can't do cash in, cash out, well, it's a real problem. And a big part of that is, does the agent have any e-money to sell to you? And does he have enough cash to take your e-money? Because it's a one-to-one -one trade, effectively. It's like selling bananas. Massive problems. If you end up going into a region, sending money virally into a region where there's no agents that are willing to serve, or they're not well trained, or they're not this, not that, it's, it hits your brand quite hard. It hits the customer trust, and actually, that agent network needs to be managed really, really well. Mm. It needs to be trained. It's a, it's it's an analog problem. It's not one that you can solve digitally, but it's really important. Now, there's ways that you can help your agents a lot, though. Do they have access to data that helps them know where they can replenish their float? You could send in motorbikes with with cash services, you know. And 
you could route plan if you can see the patterns in your data and all sorts of things. And that's the kind of clever stuff that's coming out now that it's, it's the, it's not the sexy front end stuff that the customer sees, but there's so much under the water that has to happen to make this thing really work very well. And, and that's where I think some of our, some of the more modern kind of API centric fintechers can add a lot of value in our space is help and use that data, predict flows, get cash moving around the country, tell people where to go, what to do. And I can see some of it starting to happen. That's super interesting because I think just like Uber, like you have a bad first experience with Uber and a bad driver, then it's really going to affect you. Whereas, you know, somebody sent you money for the first time, you go to an agent and that agent has no cash. You're going to be like, well, this service is useless. Exactly. I, don't, I don't trust it anymore. Exactly. And actually now you're talking about using data and clever ways of getting messages from the agents to and predict where cash is going to be needed or where somebody might be running out of cash. And that's kind of a data and API sort of question. So so talk to me a little bit about uh, APIs in M-Pesa. What, what does an API mean to you first and foremost? And then how did you use them in M-Pesa? Okay. So in 2005, no APIs, right? Closed silo system. But the first thing we did probably in, two th- well, 2007, probably our first integration happened. And at the end of the day, an API is a way for two systems to talk to each other. What's the difference between API and integration we can get into for sure. But we did our first integration to uh, Switch and we offered cardless ATM transactions. So you could go to an ATM and use it as a digital agent effectively um, to withdraw money with like a card. And that was just a piece of software that you were it's able to take, take like Lego, yeah. plug it into your service mm-hmm. and then suddenly yeah. ATMs were available to you. Yeah. So, so the ATM provider was able to call APIs to do authentication and do this, that and the other. ISO 8583. It's, mm-hmm. it's fairly standard stuff, right? Um, our next integration was with Western Union. Um, we were able to send money from the UK into Kenya. So we needed an API for them to actually um, trigger that. Our bill payments solution is useless without APIs. If you cannot, if, if you can land the money in the bill payers account, but they don't know it, well, they're not going to update their systems. So when you're talking to this equivalent of Sky, DSTV, and you want your Sky TV to turn back on, well, you kind of need to get them the payment information, you know? But it's kind of standard nuts and bolts payments gateway stuff. But all this was, you know, it, it's all happened kind of in parallel, alternative payment infrastructure separately to the to the banking space, the card space. But it's it's all there. It's all happening in this space as well. So we've been using APIs for a long time. Um, but it's all happened in the... In the sense where there's VPNs between different channels doing, doing so this they're not and the other. internet facing. They're not available to everybody. It's no. it's kind of yeah. you've restricted those APIs to only be available to who you need, but you've built them using the same tools that somebody might use to make a PSD two friendly API in in the world. Yeah. So what I, would you say? But actually, they're probably most of them out there in the world these days are soap rather than rest, and um, that's a big change that's happening in the next year to two years, I would say, that will become more developer friendly. One thing that was done by Safaricom was an what they call an instant payment notification. It's a way for them to get to more bill payment companies more quickly. Because at the end of the day, what what these companies need is an instant notification. They can deal with the settlement and clearing later, but they need a notification to know that payment was received. When you do it P2P, you send an SMS. You don't send an SMS to a business. So they turned that SMS into effectively a webhook. And that is our most powerful first API that's a bit more public in M-Pesa. And that's enabled businesses 
to innovate quite a lot. So one example is MCOPA in Kenya, MCOPA Solar. They receive that instant payment notification, they update their systems and um, lights turn on, literally. <laughs> so a customer has a solar system at home. They've bought it for about $25 off the shelf from their, their, their dealers or whatever. And they've agreed to pay higher purchase for a year, um, about 40p a day, something like that, for a year. And then they own the kit. But it's a way to get a decent quality kit home with you quickly, but you can kind of get the payments gone. You have to pay by a PESA. And um, they turn the business model, they turn it from you owe money into actually it's a bit like airtime. When you run out of credits, you need to buy more credits, 365 credits in total. Mm-hmm. And um, you can buy a week's worth, you can buy a day's worth. If you run out of credits, your light stops working just like your phone does. And when you put more credits in, then again, your light starts working again. So it starts to look, for those of us that live in the West, a lot like just having um, putting a coin in the electricity <laughs> box. Exactly. It's the same thing, except you're using APIs instead of the, the box itself triggering mm-hmm. something. Yeah. You're, you're paying by your phone and the lights come on again. That's really amazing because now you're providing electric, you know, the fact that we have solar, you know, cheap solar panels available to people, I think is, you know, a huge advancement, this decentralized infrastructure piece. But if that API wasn't there, then getting that message to that solar piece that the payment had happened would take a really long time. So it speaks to the power of APIs and what businesses can do when a financial services organization or telco in this case really does embrace the power of APIs. Exactly. Which I think speaks to my next question, which was going to be, you know, what should banks take from that? What what should they learn? What are the key lessons around APIs that you've learned? I think there was something about developer friendliness between SOAP and RESTful that was really key. It's listening to your developer community. Um, if there's a pain point, if they're telling you that they need something, they may not tell you it in the language that you want to hear it in, but there's something going on there. Listen a bit harder. Listen, there's something going on there. I mean, I, I've learned this over the years, even within Vodafone, um, I had to listen to my people in Safaricom and Vodacom. They may not say it in the way that that the techies back in IBM could know exactly what to do, but I can translate. If I listen well enough and ask the right questions, um, they are effectively, the developers are your customers, um, especially if you're gonna go for a developer pays model, right? If you want them to pay for something, it has to be something they actually want to use. Even more so, if they've got choices, like they have outside of Kenya, they have choices, well then actually your developer's part of the sales process, right? If, if a developer likes your service more than that one, they're going to encourage their uh, management teams to buy the one that they want. So the developer in the API space is king because in this space, picking the right API is really down to listening to developers. To get the most out of PSD2 and APIs, you have to really listen to the developers as a business person, as a technical person inside a bank. That becomes paramount. Would you? I, I think the best thing you can do is have somebody who's a technical product manager, someone who can talk developer language to help do the product management of designing what your API package should be. Because if you can't talk that same developer language, how do you know what a geek wants? You know, when you listen to them, actually, that you're talking a second language if, if you have never actually been there in the middle of it and, and understood what on earth they're saying so I think that's key actually that you 
you look at your own team and you make sure that you've got the right kind of characters hanging around. It's really crucial. Yeah. Interesting. So I'm going to uh, ask a slight change of direction and talk a little bit about the impact of M-Pesa in terms of financial inclusion. So we talk about you know the amount of people that were reliant on cash who couldn't save for a rainy day. The only way they could save money was sticking it under the mattress or trying to find a safe place for it. So what, what's been the impact really of M-Pesa having existed? Is it, is it really aided financial inclusion? Has it helped in some way? Well, there's been very little actual research evidence until very recently to say, can we 100% say that one means the other? And there was a paper brought out just, I think, in in, um, November, December last year that explicitly said there is a direct correlation, that that we're actually improving a certain percentage of of, of families' lives in Kenya with with Impesa, which is like... Wow. Really quite amazing. That's little amazing. Moments. I can't remember the statistics right now. But you talk to any Kenyan and you tell them that no one else in the world has this thing that you have and they, they laugh. I mean, and it was like 10 years ago when nobody knew what this thing was and now they laugh at you. It's changed the infrastructure in Kenya. It's changed the fabric of, of Kenya and it's got um, a verb to impress someone. You and I take going to a shop and paying with our cards for granted. And I think that's what they now take for granted with services like Impesa. That's really significant. And, and it's, it's not even just about the saving, it's about moving money. There's an awful lot of people are traders. They, they buy and sell goods. And if you can't actually pay for those goods because you've got to travel and buy them, it, it changes the way that you can interact with the world if you can trade electronically at a distance. It's the distance, I think, that's made the real difference. So we can, you can pay somebody remotely. You can do it with a bank account, but it's not the same. It's hard. They don't, the, the bank accounts in Kenya are changing a lot. They are innovating massively because they've got this massive competitor. But back 10 years ago, there was just no easy way to do it. You would actually use Western Union probably before you would use a bank to send money wow. up country. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's huge. So quick fire round. Uh, we're going to throw a few questions for you that we, we throw at everybody, um, but it, uh, hopefully you enjoy some of these. So key question, how do you motivate a team? I've been very lucky. I have these kind of stories to tell. Um, the kind of things that we're trying to do create massive impact. And and therefore, if you bring everybody with you on that journey and everybody understands what we're trying to achieve and you can lead with enthusiasm and you can be transparent about what's going on i think people come with beautiful okay next one uh what advice would you give to somebody who wants to get into fintech ha huh. do you know what the hardest thing is probably giving somebody to give you a, a chance these days because it's such a bubble right i don't even know if i would get into fintech in london because i'm so outside of fintech um in, in the london bubble but mostly it's like if don't, don't be scared of fintech. It's software. It's user experience. It's the same stuff as every other software business is doing. You know, Amazon, Facebook, all the rest of it. If you can do jobs there, you can do fintech jobs. Beautiful. Uh, what's your number one productivity tip? Productivity tip. When I'm on it, I have a to-do list per day that I set up in the morning. You know, it's just being a bit organised. That's a Simple but effective <laughs> habit. It's it's so so uh, underlooked is the to do list. It really yeah. is. And then lastly, deeper question: What rule do you live your life by? I would say it's give everybody an A, and then figure it out from there. Oh, I love that. 
Leslie Ann Vaughan, thank you very much for your time. <laughs> thank you. If you like today's show, do us that favor. Leave us that review on iTunes. You'd make our week. And leave it on any other platform. Thank you very much for listening. Till next time. Thank you.